You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble. Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Radical Australia on 855 on your AM dial. Uh, My name is Joseph Toscana. I nearly forgot my name there. And the producer is Kelly Whitworth. Kelly's put a hand in the big barrel we have. This is a little bit like barrels in Snowtown. We have these barrels full of guests. And she's pulled out Dean Lombard. How are you, Dean? Yeah, I'm okay. And it's really nice to be out of that barrel. <laughs> yes. At least you're... <laughs> she may put you back. She's one of the world's best producers, but a cruel human being, Dean. I'm a... <laughs> she's very cruel to me. She forces me to talk to people. I can't think of anything worse. Now, Dean, just to orient... That's a great welcome, isn't it, Dean? <laughs> and, um, and maybe maybe you're in the, long, the wrong line of work, Joey. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's therapy. It's therapy. It's I, all about him, you see, Dean. <laughs> exactly. It's all about me. It's nothing to do with... What was your name again? <laughs> now, 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 Dean, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit puzzled. Yeah. I should really be calling you... Dino Lombardi, shouldn't I? Well, you can actually, and yeah, my my father's name originally was Lombardi. He changed it in the nineteen sixties mm. to Lombard. So yeah, Dino Lombardi is my true identity, I guess. Mm. So please do, please do. My yes. father, Matteo Lombardi, his parents were Italian. Yeah, it's got it's got a nice ring to it, you know. Um, look, your father did what I did when I was a kid. We had to. We had to fit in. You know, I used to be called Giuseppe and then I'd have to change to Joseph and then to Joe, you know, to, to be a, a real Australian. And it was a nasty time. Um, yeah, it, it is sad. And I look I look at my dad and my mum also is a child of immigrants and like they lost a lot of their culture because of this big pressure in the 1960s and 50s to fit into the sort of monoculture and not to have their own cultural identity. Mm. Mm, yeah, yeah. Look, I've got the same experience. Um, did you speak Italian at home, or that kind of disappeared by the time you were? Came no, to not at all. No. I don't even know if my dad can speak Italian still, right. um, beyond a few words. You know, we were, cause my, yeah, my mum was uh, of Greek, Greek mm-hmm. heritage. My dad Italian, and they just spoke English, um, but they didn't cook Italian or anything. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. pretty different. Mixed marriage, you know, Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Christian, Greek. Yeah. Italian. 
yeah, yeah, no. Interesting. I, I remember them telling me actually that when they got married, you know, my dad's family wanted it to be at a Catholic church, and my mum's family wanted it to be at a Greek Orthodox church. So they went, "Bugger you all!" and they got married at a Church of England church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we laugh Great about it life. now, but it, it had a profound impact on people. Are your parents uh, still? Yeah. Are your parents still alive? They are. They are, uh, living out in the suburbs in Melbourne. Uh, do you want to say anything nice yeah. about them? Yeah, we, we, get on, we get on okay. It's an interesting journey that you take with your parents. You know, we went through periods where there was a bit of friction, I guess, between us. But, you know, you get older, you work it out, you realise, you know, one of the things... Yeah, you realise a lot of things. One of the things I realised was that, you know, wow, a lot of people had way worse experience with their parents than I did. So that helps to put some things into perspective. And I think you can also get to that point where you go... Uh, you know, it's, there's no point <laughs> if you can avoid friction and, you know, find find the good bits in people and, you know, save friction for the things where friction is really important. Yeah, you're quite right. Look, we're all victims of our culture and our language and our social circumstances. And I think most parents, I mean, I have my disagreements and my kids have my disagreements with me, I think. Most parents do the best they can in the situation they find themselves in and some you know, we've got silver spoons and others have just got to struggle every minute of the day. Did you ever, ever meet any of your grandparents? Yeah, I, I never knew my dad's parents because they both died before I was born. He was, he was a, a, a late child for them. They were in their sort of 50s when he was born. Uh, but yeah, I knew my mum's parents. They, they died over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, but I knew them. I saw them a bit growing up and I guess I saw them less as I got older. But, um, but yeah, no, they were around. And it was interesting because, you know, I reflect back on, you know, yeah, I had a bit to do with them, but not a heap to do with them. I didn't really know them that well. And it's made me think that, you know, okay, for my grandkids, I'd like to really make sure that I have a good relationship with them because I think it's, I I sort of feel sometimes I sort of missed out on that relationship with my grandparents just because it didn't really happen that much and I'd like to sort of do it differently. Mm -hmm. So, So what was your father born? You said he was born in Australia, was he? Yeah, he was he was born here. He's he's got a fascinating backstory actually because his his mother came out to Australia with her husband and a child and pregnant with another child in the 1920s. Right. They came from northern Italy. Yep. Um, and they had a few more kids, but um, but his um, her husband because he's not his he's not my father's father. His mother's husband uh, was working in Queensland uh, on the sugar plantations mm. and. Got, got some sort of parasitic infection. Yep, leptospirosis. That brain damage. Yeah, it's called leptospirosis. Very common. Yeah, it might have been that. Yeah, mm. uh, but basically mm. caused brain damage. He got sent back because he couldn't work, and he ended mm. up going to an institution because he basically, yeah, it, it damaged his capacity to do anything to be a decent human being. Almost, it really damaged him, and he ended up in an institution, and nobody knows what happened to him. And then he's mother subsequently got together with another Italian immigrant, one that they had met on the boat coming out, actually, and mm. he, that was uh, Lombardi. He was my father's father. He also, he'd been a fruit picker, um, and he had, he, he had a hernia, and in those days, in no, you know, no public health care, uh, he couldn't get it fixed, and he just became very, he lost a lot of mobility, could no longer work, physical work, so he ran a boarding house in North Melbourne for Italian immigrants, and that's where my dad grew up. Mm. Look, I might give you some historical background which may help you understand the situation because uh, I've got a similar story. The 
when they had the Canucks in Queensland uh, cutting cane, uh, mm. they refused to fire the cane because these were Canucks and they would die from leptospirosis. Uh, when the Canucks were deported uh, with uh, Federation in 19, between 1901 and about 1908, they deported yep. over 25,000. There was no labour force, so they had to rely on what they described as semi-whites, which were the Mediterraneans, you know, the Italians and the Greeks. Yeah. And they still refused to burn the cane, and it was only after the Italian workers there, the radical Italian workers, in, went on strike on a number of occasions that the cane began to be burnt in North Queensland so that people right. wouldn't get uh, these diseases. The other interesting thing about your grandparents is that they would have been... There was a, a huge wave of... Italian refugees post Mussolini from northern Italy yes. because in northern Italy it was an anarchist stronghold and a communist and socialist stronghold and when Mussolini gained power in 1921 many people fled for their lives and they found themselves here in Australia and they were very welcome because most, many of the people from Lombard were skilled textile workers and you'll see a number of families in Geelong that are still there. They would have worked in the Geelong textile mills for six months of the year. And for the yeah, other right. six months, they'd catch the train, go up to North Queensland around Ingham and Tully and cut cane for six months. And uh, you may find this fascinating. There's a bloke called Francesco Fantine, who we remember every year, who was uh, interned. He was an anti-fascist, but he was interned with fascists in Adelaide and he was murdered and we, we celebrate his... Um, his existence once a year, but uh, so he, your grandparents would have come from the same period. And in here in in Melbourne, there was a thing called the Matteotti Club across the road from Trades Hall, and that was a big socialist, anarchist, communist hangout for Italian immigrants. So they had yeah, a prof right. they had actually had a profound impact on uh, radicalising Australians about the evils of fascism, because at that stage nobody took Mussolini that seriously. Yeah, so it's interesting yeah, how it all fits together. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And you know, the Italians have been such a big part, especially of Melbourne's heritage, right? Yeah. Um, there's a few big waves of migration, like early this century, and then yeah, yeah. after the Second yeah. World War. And, yeah. yeah. Well, well, the first, the, the ones in the twenties were basically political refugees. The ones in the fifties, which my parents came in the forties and late forties and fifties, they were basically economic refugees. But the ones in the twenties, they were quite sophisticated well-educated political refugees, to, you know, to a significant degree. I even knew one bloke who's now dead, Bruno Vanini, who was re involved in an assassination plot against Mussolini and then escaped to Australia. So yeah, they, wow. they had a very interesting history. So you've got the blood of radicals and revolutionaries running in your veins, young man. Okay, okay, <laughs> that uh, starts to make sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It skips a generation usually, so <laughs> so your kids are going... You got any kids? Yeah, I've got two kids and I've got one grandkid, actually, so... All oh, right. Well, the, the two kids yeah. are going to be accountants and boring, but the grandkid, watch out for him. Well, no, they're both artists. Actually, my kids are both artists. Are they? Uh, well, yeah. watch out for the watch out for the grandkid. Job. I think I think you got some. You got going to have a bit of trouble there, like your parents had with you. <laughs> Did you have any brothers and sisters? You got any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got one of each. Got an older sister and a younger brother. Yeah. 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 So, what year yeah, were you yeah. born? I was born in '68. Oh God! Yeah. A May, a, a May, 
1968. I remember yeah. those days. I was all of 17. Paris in uproar, Western Europe in uproar. God, God, you've got the pedigree. You have pedigree, boy. You have pedigree. Yeah, of course. You know, I don't, I don't remember 1968. Um, so, you know, my, my memory's really from the 70s. But, yeah, I, I think I, I was born in a good year, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, the, the 60s were... Sixties were a great time for a lot of things, including people, and I'm very proud to be one of the sixties vintage people. So, where did you go? Were you, were you born in Melbourne? Yeah, I was born in Melbourne at St Vincent's Hospital. I've lived here all my life, apart from a few years I lived um, in one or two other places. But yeah, I'm Melbourne through and through, pretty much. Mm. Uh, and all of us, my, my siblings, my parents, my kids, all still in Melbourne. Yeah, we're very much. I don't know if that makes us boring or just passionate. Right. <laughs> I think the latter. I love Melbourne. All right. So did you, where did you go to primary school? Yeah, I went to primary school just in... I grew up in Blackburn. I went to a primary school in Blackburn, mm-hmm. down the bottom mm-hmm. of our street. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I went to also to a primary school in Box Hill for a few years, um, but all around that area. I went to a few different schools, actually. I was moved around a bit. Um, we didn't move house. I just tried different schools. I was a shy little timid kid who had problems with and we tried different schools and I finally got through. <laughs> oh, that's primary school. <laughs> I don't want to ask you about high school. <laughs> oh, look, I, I, I think I went to three different high schools and two different primary schools. Right, um, right, right. I, yeah, and, you know, that's what, whatever. That was, yeah. That well, was. So what? You weren't, you weren't big fan of the, uh, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, were you? Or what? No, I did okay with school stuff. Uh, I had trouble fitting in. I was a really shy, timid little kid. I used to get bullied a lot, and that made my school life difficult. Mm. Yeah, that's one of those things happens to some kids, you know, partly for me. I was small, I was shy, I was a bit immature, you know, I was a late, late, I Uh. I matured a bit late. On average, you know, so they're, they're all that sort of stuff. You know what kids can be like. Kids can be pretty humble. Did you think... Kids do stand out a bit. Yeah, did they... uh... (laughs) Well, you think it was just your shine, or so they smelt the Greek, uh, Italian uh, lunches? There was certainly a bit of racism sort of stuff there. Um, a, a lot of the Greek, and there was a fair few Greeks and Italians in my area, Blackburn and Nunawading, and they were either sort of shy, timid, or really sort of macho tough. And the macho tough ones, that was how they survived through school, you know, yeah. and I wasn't the macho tough. Kids, mm. so I was a shy, timid sort of one. Yeah. Um, school, school can be really hard for kids. Like kids can be awful to each other, and often the parents and teachers don't really understand what's going on. No, well, there's not much they can do, is there? In those no, days, not in those days, not in those days. So, did you find any talents in high school? Did I find talents? Did you any um, talent in high school in any particular area you were kind of um, drawn towards? No, I guess I discovered, I really discovered my love of writing and I've always loved writing and now I'm mostly, my writing is mostly songs, I'm a songwriter, but um, I used to write stories and poems and I think I really did discover writing and I also really loved, especially in high school, just sort of English and like studying novels. I really got, because I was always a a very keen reader, even as a young kid, but you know, in high school I had had a really great English teacher for several years. And I really learned to, to, to take joy in, like, digging into books and trying to understand what, what they were talking about and 
you know, like critiquing a text on that deeper sort of level. So that's one thing I really discovered in school, I reckon. Um, that's probably the main thing. I mean, the, the other the other talent I really developed when I was at school but not in school was playing music. And I used to play in, like, school bands. Like, I played recorder and clarinet when I was a kid. I didn't really like it that much, but I played it. And I had a bit of an affinity to me for music. But then um, when I was in high school, I um, was hanging... You know, one of my mates from school... He was actually from one of the schools that I'd left, but I'd stayed friends with him. Uh, he got into playing sort of, you know, bass and electric guitar in a band, and he sort of got me into it. And I really discovered my love for sort of making music through that. So, yeah, again, that was like while I was at school, but not necessarily no. through school. Mm. So what did your parents think about this? You know, obviously they had you slotted in as a doctor or an accountant or a dentist or... You know, what do they think about all this? Yeah, that is interesting because my parents very much were, yeah, they had those sort of aspirations for their kids. They were sort of in some ways classic sort of aspirational working class people. My dad was a uh, tradesman. He was a, a figure and turner. Uh, my mum had been like a secretary but had trained as an adult to be a teacher. And they were really all about education and getting the kids into uni and doing, you know, professional sort of jobs. So... They weren't really crazy about me being obsessed with music. Um, I was interested for a while in becoming an architect, and they were very keen about that, and I studied sort of physics and chemistry and maths in order to do architecture, but I never ended up going to uni to do architecture. Um, mm. Yeah, I ended up sort of tapping around for quite a few years after I finished school and not doing much, and it was only later, as a young adult, that I sort of went back to uni and did some, did some sort of study after I'd figured out what I wanted to do. So what, what, um, what did you do for those years that after you left high school? Well, um, I, I actually did a bit, a, a, year, a bit over a year at um, Teachers College to be a primary teacher. That right. was what I sort of did by default because I decided I didn't want to do architecture but couldn't think of anything else to do. And my mum was a teacher, so I did that. I didn't really get into teaching, but I did art and music as electives there, which I really enjoyed. I studied photography, which was great. Uh, then I dropped out of uni, left home, and just hung around, became a busker, spent most of my time on the streets in the city for a few years. Hang on, hang on, hang on, the... hang on, hang on, hang on, Dina, Dina, Dina. <laughs> you became a busker. I can see yeah. your parents, their eyes rolling, you know. You became, oh, yeah, no, they... You became they, a they busker. <laughs> Tell they us were what, not very pleased with that. What did you busk? <laughs> well, were you singing, dancing, staying in your head? What did you do? No, I just played guitar and sang. Did you? I loved playing guitar. I loved singing. Mm. What, what years? What, year, what years? What years were these? Um, mid to late eighties. Probably I started busking about eighty three, eighty four oh, when I was nice. a teenager, and then I was mm. full time busker from about nineteen eighty six through eighty eight, pretty much. Yeah, where were you busking? Mainly the Burke Street Mall. I, I, may have put, I, I may have put some money in your hat, mate. You may have. You I may, may have. have. I may have because the Burke Street Mall, did. you know, you, you would have been an identity then. Well, I was there every day and I'd, and I'd, at night I would do either the mall or later or the, up near the cinemas in Burke Street where yeah. the cinema used to be or up at the nightclubs late at night. That was probably more in the early 90s, like the Metro nightclub at the top of Burke Street. That was great. You'd go there at sort of midnight, you'd busk till 3 a.m., you'd make a couple of hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah. Um, People would be pissed they didn't care what, or drugged out of their brain, they didn't care what you were saying. Well, it's funny, the, 
the classic thing would be that a group of people would come out of the nightclub like up, uh, up their head, you know, and often completely underdressed for the weather. Uh, and they'd stand and watch me playing God, Neil Young and Bob Dylan songs, and they'd go, oh, man, this is way better than what's in there. And they'd throw $20 at you. It was great. It was good fun. You met a lot of people. It was really, really good fun. I love busting. I still miss it. I still think I should go back and do it. Um, well, it's not the most reliable income. Like, I also worked as a bicycle courier for a while. and that A bicycle? Hang on, hang on, hang on. A bicycle courier in the 80s and 90s in Melbourne? Yeah, it's probably almost a dead industry now, but back then, before email was common... Uh, no, that's uh, a, not a dead industry. It's lucky you're not dead. <laughs> I mean, I still, Well, it is dangerous, yeah, yeah, and, you know, there were some cases of people getting killed and more cases of people getting, like, injured. Mm. Seriously, um, I was I was young, I was lucky, and I was reckless. And a lot of them were reckless, you know. I wouldn't do it now. I basically stopped us recruiting when I had kids because I, I suddenly thought, yeah, I want to stick around for my kids. <laughs> uh, look, any any, yeah. any interesting uh, things you couriered? I know you didn't look in the envelopes, but any wads of money or drugs or what do you reckon? I don't know about drugs. <laughs> Certainly a lot of money because I know that, and they didn't really tell us because that would be a risk, but I know for a fact that a lot of companies would send money by courier because they consider it safer because, you know, criminals would target armoured trucks. <laughs> no one would think of couriers. And for one company I worked with in Sydney for a while, there was a regular job from a diamond company where they would send diamonds from their store to their, like, safety deposit centre, and there was this one older trusted courier who once a week would carry, like, Hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of diamonds on his bike oh. from this place to the bank or wherever he took it. Oh, I, think that's, I think that's astonishing. And thinking back on it, like I get their logic, but thinking back on it, I go, man, that could, if somebody found out, that could have been terribly dangerous for that guy. Like, that's a classic example, I think, of a worker being put at risk. Well, look, uh, I don't know. Recklessly. What I, yeah, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was watching late night TV, and what you've just told me happened. <laughs> Yeah, right. It actually blow the courier's brains out, and there was a million dollars of diamonds to be collected somehow. It leaked out from the uh, place. Yeah, look, it's dangerous. Well, did you get paid anything? Yeah, look, courier courier work was um, commissioned. You got paid per job, basically. If you were good, you could do pretty good money from it. Yeah. Um, and it was it was it's one of those things where you know you got to be fast, which was where the recklessness comes into it, and um, and you had to work really hard, and then you could get really good money. So when you were fit and keen, you could do well. And when you did perform well, then you got given more jobs because there's, you know, this is before like career companies, the the ones that are left, they they sort of use computers now to give out jobs. But back then it was all manual, and like the person with the radio would hand out the jobs. You, you had a good relationship with him, you'd get better jobs. You proved yourself, you'd get better jobs. There was that real mm. virtuous or vicious circle sort of thing. So it was pretty competitive. Actually, and it was a great fun job because there was all this adrenaline sort of stuff. But yeah, well, you're, you're actually part of the gig economy before the gig economy. <laughs> wow, well, there's always been a gig economy, right? Yeah, it's just more yeah. widespread now, eh? Yeah, it absolutely yeah. was, and it's the same sort of issues that we talk about with like Uber drivers and that. You know, we we paid a work cover fee, but we, you know, and I think they took tax out of our income. So it was, but we were basically contractors, yeah. and the, you know, we didn't have holidays, we didn't have sick pay. 
you know, it, it's, it's, it's that sort of setup where, yeah, you are contractors when you really shouldn't be contractors. You really should be employees, but contracting works out for the company. Um, yeah. Then there was that thing where it was a small company, we knew the boss and, you know, mm. all the senior staff, and we were all mates, and it felt like one big family, but you sit back and think, and it's like, well, oh, Bill, he was still exploiting the hell out of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> but he, but, he was a lovely guy, but... Yeah, well, you got drinks at the pub at the end of the day, so it's all right. Yeah. Now, now, now yeah. Dean, I'm a little bit concerned. I heard you use the S word for a Melbourne boy. You said Sydney. What's a <laughs> Melbourne do- boy doing in Sydney? This is great concern to me. I don't know if I should terminate the uh, chat. Oh, no, I stuffed it up. <laughs> I forgot to refer to my notes. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I lived here. I, I, when I was 20, I went on a great big... Me and my friend were going to bust around Australia. Um, we went to Adelaide. We started in Adelaide. I don't know why we started in Adelaide. We went to Adelaide, started there, <laughs> went round. We sort of split up in Sydney, and I just ended up staying in Sydney for the rest of the year, for the better part of the year, and lived there. Met awesome people, worked as a bicycle courier and a busker. Um, met some great friends, musicians, enjoyed the place. I was really happy to come back to Melbourne because I love Melbourne so much, but I really did enjoy living in Sydney, and I remember at the time I, was, I enjoyed it so much, I was like, I had this one of these you know, young person's grand plan of like, I'm going to go and live in a different place for a year, every year, you know, <laughs> and, which probably would have been a fun thing to do, but I didn't do it. I just went back to Melbourne and then suddenly <laughs> got married and had kids too young, so as you do sometimes. But, um, but I, I love living in Sydney. It's a very different place in Melbourne. Hang on. And you one of the interesting things was mm. that nearly... Every friend I made in Sydney was not from Sydney. I hardly met anybody who's actually from Sydney. It was all people, you know, someone from Brisbane and someone from Broken Hill and someone from Brazil, you know, but no one actually from Sydney. Uh, you were all there for the dream, weren't you? You were there for the dream, but didn't you, you didn't realise you were basically the undercrust which the Sydneyites used to live their luxurious lifestyle. You did yeah, the dirty work. True. You that's did the true. dirty work, you know. I, that's very true. That's very true. It is a beautiful place to be oppressed, though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you could go down to the Sydney Harbour and just stretch your legs and look, is, at, look at that harbour. Like, yeah. I was really into photography. I would spend all my weekends just going around taking photos of beautiful mm-hmm. buildings and hills and sites and angles and everything. It's really, yeah, so it is a beautiful place. But, yeah, no, it's a crazy yeah. Capitalism feels so much more closer in Sydney. It's like they're way more overt about it. You yeah. know, they hide it in Melbourne behind friendly baristas. But, you know, <laughs> Sydney is like feels like it's it's a. I, I, I read this back in around the bicentenary. Um, Michael Looney did this great big double page cartoon about being in Sydney for the bicentenary celebrations. That was really good. And one of the things he said was that Sydney is like a giant theme park, and that I reckon that just actually that is. That is how I experienced Sydney too. It was like a giant theme park. Fun, superficial. I'm not saying Sydney's necessarily like that now. I'm sure like any place, it's got lots of layers, but that was the impression I had. So so you were in Sydney with the Bicentenary in 88, were you? No, no, I was there in um, 89, actually, so just Uh, after. You you missed the... monorail. The the monorail was new. No, but you missed all the big protests. All Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders from all over Australia came for the alternative 
bicentenary <laughs> celebrations. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I did miss you that. Missed that. Oh, that was a big thing. My, yeah, my late wife went down there to protest. Yeah, I remember. Oh, okay. No, she came back with lots. She was a photographer too, and she came as a visual artist. She came back with a lot of uh, interesting photographs from that period. Now, I've, I've always had a dream, and you're going to, I'm going to vicariously live this dream through you, Dean. Okay. Now, I've always dreamt of bicycling across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, but I've never done it. Did you do it as a courier? Yes. Yes. <sighs> it's, a, it's a bit tricky because you can't go on the road. There's a side path, mm. and there are steps that go up to the side path, and you can't ride your bike up the steps. You can ride your bike down the steps if you're good, right. and as a courier, you could do that, but... They have these steps, and in the middle of the steps, there's a flat bit that's like a steep ramp. And mm. what you're supposed to do is you walk up the steps and you wheel your bike up this ramp. It's a pain in the ass, <laughs> um, but it's worth it because it's pretty nice cycling across the city Harbour Bridge. Oh, like, it'd be wonderful. Yeah, it's pretty specky. It'd be specky. Yeah. I've only gone under it. I've got to I've say, as a Melbourneian, one of the things I loved about Sydney was riding the ferries. Like the fact that they're just a normal part of the public transport system yeah. that blew my mind, and I would, I would ride ferries on the weekends, not going anywhere, just to get a kick out of it. You mm, <laughs> mm, mm. go to Luna Park and all those places, and Taronga no, Zoo. I, I, no, no, I didn't go to. I, I know I went to the gallery a bit because it was free back then. Yeah. Uh, I didn't go to Luna Park. I didn't really go to many of the sort of places. I used to go to Powerhouse. I think oh, yeah. Powerhouse is like the proto. Science Works. So mm. I think it was before Science Works was set up, but it was a similar sort of thing. Mm. I used to love going there. It was really like that, I was that's, like, ne- that's near Circular Key, isn't it? No, yes, maybe. No, it's, uh, no, it's, it's in Ultimo. Oh, it's right. an old power station. station right. So it's 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 still in that inner, but it's yeah. yeah. I can't even remember exactly where it is now. But it was like it was in Ultimo somewhere. So on the edge of this sort of CBD near that bay off right. the side. Mm. I don't even know what it's called. Um, Darling Harbour, the, the bit south of Darling Harbour. Um, yeah, and I was really into technology and history, so I, I found it really fascinating. I used to go there a lot just to look at stuff and mm. take photos of stuff. Mm. Did, you, did you actually have any exhibitions at that stage, or this was just for your own personal satisfaction, these photos? Oh, only personal. I never, I've never had a photography exhibition. I've never really done it. Seriously, it's really been a hobby, right. I guess. Because, you know, I studied at uni for one year. Or I did two years actually photography. I just really enjoyed it. Um, Can you develop and, your own yeah. film? I used to, yeah. um, but I, I and I I got rid of my home developing stuff years ago because I sort of stopped doing oh. it. But yeah, I learned how to do that at uni, and I did do it at home for a while as well. Oh. Um, but you know, I digital photography, digital photography has a lot of benefits over film photography, just in terms of the ease of getting your images just right. You know. Oh. Um, and not having to worry about the cost of the film and the developing liquids, well, you know. Yeah, and even like, you know, like the ISO, the film speed and all that sort of thing. When you've mm. got to roll a film, you make a decision and you're stuck with it. With digital, you can just pick whatever's right for the situation. So, you know, and I, I, I get why a lot of people love film. It's the limitation. The limitation can really drive creativity, right? Mm. Um, uh, th- that is absolutely a thing but uh, I certainly find the benefits of as someone who grew up with film and did a lot of film processing and that whole thing where you make a print five times before you get it right because you're trying to get 
the contrast and all that sort of just right. It's, it's really hard to go back from digital photography. When you just move a little nub and go, oh, contrast is too much. I'll just bring it back a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just, mm. I'll just mop out this bit. Oh, too much. Bring it back. Like now, Dean, I'm going to, I'm going to be your parents here. I'm a little bit concerned about you, Sunny boy. Here you are, enjoying yourself. <laughs> when did you decide that this was not? the life for a young father, that you need to do the right things by your kids. When did you go back to the real world into wage slavery, sonny boy? That's a good question. It sort of happened slowly. It happened slowly. I mean, you know, I was still being a career and a musician when my kids were born. Uh, I just started uni, actually, because I decided to, do, to study social work. Um, social work? Yeah, I, I trained as a social worker in the end. Why? Yeah. Why? Why? I don't know. I guess I, you know, when I was young, I spent a lot of time on the streets with people who lived on the streets, and I really got that experience and view of the social aspects of disadvantage, you know, and the way that society impacts on what people are even able to do with their lives. The way that so much of what you can do is driven by where you came from and what the social impacts are on you, you know, your relationship with wealth, and with work, with education, everything. Um, and, and for a while, me and a friend, we ran this massive, huge sort of share house that we opened up to people who were homeless. Yeah, and it was hang amazing. On, hang, on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Big step to take. Here in Melbourne or Sydney? Melbourne. Melbourne. You, what brought you to that decision? It just sort of happened. Like, we had this place, some people moved out, we had room. I had two friends who had just become homeless. We gave him some room, mm-hmm. and then it just grew from there. <laughs> like tops, all just happened. It just happened. So, how many people did you did you kind of squeeze into this place eventually? Oh, look, it wasn't a huge place. You know, we're talking about you know six or eight. Oh, that's not many. A bit yeah. of rotating sort of thing. So, yeah, small sort of thing. But I guess it was interesting to see that you know the imp- the effect just a bit of stable housing could have on helping people work out what they were needed to do was really mm. profound you know so that was what got me interested in social work um and i realized that you know of all the skills i didn't have one of the skills i did have was just being able to get along with people you know good communication yeah. good ability to you know empathize with people and that sort of stuff um so yeah so i studied social work uh i was studying when my kids were young um i was um i my marriage ended when my kids were still quite young and I became a single parent and I just, you know, needed a bit more money than I had and I got some part-time work through a friend and that just slowly grew into being part of the regular work workforce. By the time I was in my early to mid-30s, I was suddenly like, oh my God, I've got a job for three days a week. So how, old, how, old were you, how old were your kids when you became a single parent? They were five and three. Uh, did you go on the single parents benefit at that stage or were you on a, on a study allowance or something? I was on a study allowance right. at the start mm. and then I was on a single parent uh, pension for a while and, you know, I was doing a bit of part-time work and there's this interaction between work and the Attention. And in fact, you know, the the way that the interaction happens is, is a bit better for people who are on pensions and people who are on benefits like New Start, for example. Yeah. If you're on New Start and you earn a bit of money, you just lose a whole lot of your benefits straight away. If you're on a pension, they you lose less. You can 
earn more and you lose less. So it's actually more feasible. And that's one reason why sole parents are one of the most employed people of the group of people who are receiving welfare payments because it's actually a bit designed to allow them to get into the workforce. Um, and that sort of worked out okay for me. I worked part-time for quite a while. And when I finally got a job that paid so much because of the combination of the rate and the hours that I would no longer get the pension, it was like, oh, it was like a slow journey to get there. And it was quite a, by that time, it was quite a nice feeling to go, oh, okay, it's really nice to not have to be answerable to Centrelink anymore yeah. and to be able to, you know, earn enough but still be in a part-time job. You, you get so used to living on not much that you find you can live on a part-time job and still have some time to yeah, parent and do other stuff. Right. So, so how hard is it being a single parent? Look, it's, it's certainly harder for some people than others. It's difficult because... Like, and I, I was not 100% full-time. My ex-wife shared the care as well. So I had so we, we had about 50-50 right. care of the kids, well, as some people do. It's still hard because kids are pretty demanding. Mm. Uh, you need to always be there. Your work needs to be flexible. Um, I was lucky that my work, I worked in the non-profit sector, um, which is a female-dominated sector, and they're more flexible, so that helped me. Um, and, um, yeah. Right. So, so, so what was your role in this non-profit sector? You said you were a social worker, but what actually was your role? Well, I, I went through a few roles. Mm. Uh, when I first started, I was, I was just doing some sort of research and, and um, policy analysis mm. for a, as, as, a, as a contractor for a, a, a small organisation that did, did sort of policy, policy analysis and advocacy. Then I, then I got a job managing a small community organisation that did a community information centre that did emergency relief at hand got funding from the federal government to give food vouchers to people who had no money. I did that for a couple of years. That was really good to understand how that big, massive national policy sort of thing that's supposed to help people actually works and all the, you know, the ways it does work and the ways it doesn't work. And then I, through that I got work with um, the non-profit peak body called the Victorian Council of Social Service uh, working on housing policy, and then I moved into energy policy. And that was all around being a, a, a spokesperson for low-income and vulnerable people to policymakers, you know? So the energy policy stuff was around, you know, if the Victorian government department that does energy policy wants to know, oh, if we do this, what will the impact be on people? Then, you know, in that role, I would be one of the people that they would ask. And if they say, oh, we want to change the law regulating the energy market to do this mm-hmm. instead of that, we would sort of go, hey, we think you shouldn't do that, we think you should do this instead because this would work better. Uh, did you find that uh, this was at the state level, was it? Yeah, in, in that role I worked mostly at the state level. Mm-hmm. For, the, for the last five years I've been actually with an environmental non-profit and we work much more on national energy policy, which mm-hmm. is sort of a bit of a running joke because mm-hmm. there's not very much national energy <laughs> policy at the moment. No, but there is a national energy market which has regulations and that's what we work on now. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, tell me, what is an energy policy? As far as uh, the people you work for, what do you, what are the things that you keep in mind when you're looking at this area and analysing what's been put 
before you and changing things and putting up new ideas. What's the what's the essence of it? Um, a lot of it's around. I mean, one of the thing about our energy, the energy system in Australia, is it's mostly privately run, right? It's privately owned, and government attempts to control it by having a whole set of regulations that these private companies have to comply with. So. A lot of it, like one aspect of it is, for example, for energy retailers, there's all these rules about what they have to do if the customer can't pay their bill, for example. Um, so that's one example of, you know, they have a set of rules about that and then they're supposed to enforce them and one of the roles of us as advocates will be to go, it's not working, you need to do something differently, here's some ideas for how you should make these laws different so that they actually better help people who have trouble paying their bills. That's that's one example. And then another, and this is more relevant to the area I work in now, is like the way that energy networks do connections with people who, say, want to buy solar panels or something. And it's like, well, how do we make sure that, you know, that the energy network can actually accommodate renewable energy both at the big sort of level, like giant wind farms, but also at the small level, so that if people are installing solar panels in their houses, that can become part of the energy system for all of us and help us reduce emissions. Right. Do you, do you actually think that the privatisation of the energy network has made things much more difficult? Yeah, I think it does. I, th- I, think, I think it's been a mistake I, because ultimately an energy system needs to be planned, right, especially in a time of change like we're in now where we're moving away from dirty generation and trying to move towards clean generation, ideally you would have a plan, here's how we make a smooth transition. And instead, because we've got a private system, there's all these complicated stuff. Oh, we have to make the market rules in such a way that that the pursuit of profit by businesses will encourage them to do the things that we would do by planning if we were planning it. You know, it's like, it's like setting up a complicated yeah. set of rules to try to make things happen yeah. because you can't just make them happen. That's right, because you've got all these different parties. Right? You've got the people who own the poles, the people who own the bloody lines, the people who produce the energy, the people who market the energy. You yep. haven't got a centralised system, it's, but, it, but, it, but but they all have to make a profit at the end of the day, or otherwise they go under. That's right, yeah, yeah. And the whole regulatory system is designed. And we've got to make sure they make the right profit, and we've got to make sure they can make their own decisions about what to do, but we also want them to do exactly what we want them to do, so... Here's how complicated set of rules to make all that happen. And I'm actually amazed that it happens as well as it does. <laughs> to be honest, I'm amazed that the system works as well as it does. <laughs> like, full credit to the people who designed this bizarre, ridiculous system because it sort of works most uh, of the time. Look, it's, uh, it's, it's enough to drive you back to busking, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. I do consider it. Let me tell you, I consider it sometimes. Right. I do consider it sometimes. Right. Uh, I've got to say, I've been lucky to have this work during the pandemic because so many of my friends who um, work in the music industry sort of more solidly or in, you know, the entertainment industry generally have really, really suffered through these lockdowns and I've been so lucky that because I've got this day job, I've been able to do that. Well, your, par- your, parents, your parents were right, you know. You That's need you day. need a day job. <laughs> you can't yeah, make a living from right. you. They were right all along. You should have become. That's my biggest disappointment, Joe. <laughs> you should have become an architect like they wanted you to. <laughs>
I'm sure your kids will say the same thing about you later on. You realise that things tend to be intergenerational. You know that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, yep. So, <laughs> so you still doing any photography or you put that on the back burner too? Oh, look, I do it just for fun from time to time. Um, and, you know, like like I think I said before, I'm a musician. Um, I have no, 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 no. You're an, an out-of-work musician. You're, 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 you're an out-of-work musician. <laughs> Thank you. All right, but let's I get it right. And, and, you know, to take photos for, take photos for album covers and posters. What do you mean you record um, stuff? Who, who listens to it? Oh, hardly anybody. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> right, so you're one of these... Hey, we sold an album last week. Come on. <laughs> you're one of these internet that's jockeys, eh? Yeah. You're one of these internet <laughs> jockeys, you know, music internet jockeys out there. Uh, look, I, um, I've come to the point where, I, you know, for me, I do it for the love, you know. Right, right. You're not waiting to be discovered. I think I'm too old for that now. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, we play gigs, people come and see us. We, 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 what's going on? You've got other people playing with you. Well, not at the moment. <laughs> I do play in three bands and we all get gigs when gigs are a thing. Um, I'm in the middle of organising my first post-lockdown gig at the moment. So oh. gigs are back, gigs are back. Where's that, where, where's that going to be? It's going to be at the Charles Weston Hotel in Brunswick. Oh. Um, I think on the eleventh of November. We're just we're just in the middle of oh. formalising the date, um, and I'm just playing. Solo. You realise? You have realised? I don't know if you realise this, but I'm sure you'll be able to use this useless fact when you open up your uh, segment on the eleventh of November. The eleventh of November sure. is the most important day in European Australian history. I'll tell you why. On the 11th of November, 1854, the Ballarat Reform League was formed. That was the group behind the Eureka Rebellion. Okay. He's not excited yet. You're not excited yet. Oh, no, but I I didn't know that, so that's good to know. On the 11th of November, 1880, Ned Kelly was hung in Pentridge. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Wow. On the 11th of November, 1918, uh, it was Armistice Day, the end of World War One. The war yeah, in I which, didn't know that one. Yeah, the, the, the war in, in which over 62,000 young Australian men died fighting for God, King and Country. On the 11th of November, 1975, the Whitlam Labor government was dismissed. That's right. And on the 11th My first of, political memory. Yeah, and on the 11th of November, 2021, your plane... <laughs> Look at that. You are part of it, a very important... Wow. This, this could be the beginning of a career. Yeah, that's, fair. that's some great company to be in, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. you could tell people... Me and Goff, we go way back. Yeah, you, you, you <laughs> could tell people. They'll, 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 they'll clap and shit. That's if you, you play to old people, don't you? Not young people. They wouldn't know that. Well, that's <laughs> a bit of a mix, to be honest. Well, young, young people come mean, to your gigs. Well, when I say young, I mean people in their late 20s or 30s. <laughs> no. Sort of young. <laughs> so, so, so what do you play? Sorry? What, do you play an instrument or you just use your voice or you use your voice or both? Yeah, no, I play, I play guitar. I mean, I play a lot of things, but yeah. I play guitar mainly. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. I, I, like, I also play drums. Like, I play drums in one band, uh-huh. bass in another and guitar in a third, and then I do my solo stuff on guitar. Uh, so you're not a rock god? Uh, <laughs> I'm not a rock god, but I love rock music and I can rock out a bit. Oh, that's with good. the right people, my band has a couple of rock gods in it, which helps. 
My, my, my theory for being in a band, my principle is being a band with all people who are better than you. That's what I've done, and that's my band. And it's great because I can just grab onto their coattails and hold on for dear life. Yeah, look, you've, you've, um, you've found the secret of success. Surround yourself with talented people. I do the same here at 3CI. I surround myself <laughs> with talented people. I've got no talents, but they make you look good. So what's the band yep. called? Uh, my band is called The Phosphemes. The pho- <laughs> Where did that come from? Well, a phosphene, P-H-O-S-P-H-E-N-E-S. Hmm. Phosphene is any image on the retina that's caused not by light. So, you know, if you press on your eyeballs and then you see weird shapes... Any kids listening to this program, please do not do what Dean is suggesting you should do. Do not press press on your eyeballs. (laughs) You close your eyelids first. All right. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, no, we're called the Phosphenes. Um, uh, I I actually don't like the name that much, but all the rest of the band love it. Um, And there's about 10 10 other bands called the Phosphenes. I have no idea... I couldn't find any when we came with this name, but Ten others. all popped up. Mm. Yeah, there's heaps of bands called the Phosphenes. One it, of my dreams yeah. is to do a Phosphene festival to get all the bands from around the world who are called the Phosphenes to do a festival of only bands called the Phosphenes. That would be a great festival. I, I reckon you'll do well. You're a promoter. You, you sound more like a promoter than a bloody musician. Well, I, I do a bit of music events. Like I used to run open mics, like my run a, a songwriting performing group in Darabin. And, mm. Yeah, I, I do a bit of music events. Organising too uh, and live sound. I could be a promoter, I reckon. I'm doing it right. Uh, I reckon you are Except a promoter. I'm, I'm so obsessed, though. I'm, I'm just so obsessed with playing myself that I think that I'd screw up every event I promoted by trying to make myself the star of it. So, you know, <laughs> I'd need to work on that. Maybe. Uh, hang on, hang on. How can you make yourself the star when you're actually surrounded by more talented people? Well, I see, this is the this is big conundrum. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say I'd succeed. I said I would try. <laughs> try. <laughs> Big difference. <laughs> Look, uh, now, I shouldn't ask you this on uh, radio, but have you ever had bottles thrown at your band? No, never, never. I've had bottles thrown at me while cycling <laughs> from a passing car. That's the closest I've come to it. Yeah. I may have been singing at the time. Uh, uh, so it's a very sedate audience. No mosh pit? No, we're not really a mosh pit sort of band. No, we, we get dance. We get, we get people dancing. Yeah, right. Mostly little kids, if little kids come along. Little kids will dance to anything. But, uh, but we, we do some good dancing sort of stuff. Jay doesn't really know anything about music, Dean. <laughs> Dean, Dean, I know everything about everything. That's why I surround myself with talented people. I suck their brains dry. I, you won't believe this. I actually got A-plus for music in grade seven. Okay. You know? And my career has gone downhill in since You picked too early, Joe. I picked very early. Not like you. Not like you, a grandfather, still (laughs) trying to find the big time. You should be a promoter. You should be a promoter. Phosphenes. What a name. The Phosphenes. You're not going to get anywhere. You sure you don't need a manager? I'm happy to manage it year after. Yeah, no, we do need a manager. We do yeah, need a manager. Yeah, you do need a manager. Do you have posters or is it all virtual up on the... Yeah, no, we do posters. Yeah? We do posters. Oh. So much is virtual these days. Like Facebook, Facebook is the way, to, the place to promote music, basically. But yeah. we still do posters. You've you got, you got to cover all bases. Now, look, uh, most guests I have here on uh, Radical Australia have actually been overseas at some time in their life. Have you just always been stuck in the land of Oz, have you? 
Uh, mostly. I've been overseas a little. Uh, I've been to New Zealand quite a bit. <laughs> oh, come on, come on. That's the best joke I've heard all day. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's technically it's overseas. It's a whole other country, Joe. That's it. <laughs> I've been to Japan once. That's it. I've, I haven't travelled this much oh. in Look, I'm a Japanophile. I've been there many, many times. I love it. Well, did you? You've only been once. What's wrong with you? Well, I was going back. Uh, my second trip was booked for July 2020. <laughs> yeah, gone. Did you get yeah. any money back? <laughs> uh, fortunately, uh, just as we were about to buy the tickets, everything became uncertain, so we held off. And, yeah, so we didn't actually yeah, lose. Yeah. But it, yeah. It's quite interesting. You should go see some of the... Uh, traditional artists they have there. They're quite extraordinary, really. They can be expensive, but they're quite extraordinary. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I'm really, I'm really keen to go back and spend more time there. When I did go there, it was only for a relatively short period of time, but yeah. I was blown away by the place. There's so much I loved about it. Yeah, there's so, um, so much culture, place. yeah. My favourite was the sumo wrestling. But <laughs> 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 they're very hard to get into, and it's quite interesting, really. Uh, so I really love their little bar sort of culture there. They're, oh, they're, yeah. They're such yeah. A, it's tiny places, like yeah. a bar that only fits like eight people. That's like, right. That's I right. love that hole. We went to some great little bars around around Tokyo and Kyoto. Yep. Um, really awesome. Oh, they're everywhere, and you've got to drink. You've got to drink your sake. Oh, uh, yeah. If you don't drink the sake, they're not going to be very happy with you. That's where they make their money, not from the bits and pieces they give you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit like pub culture, you know. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah. So what are your plans the for Japanese the... Japanese beer, yeah. I really like the Japanese beer as well. Yeah, it's quite, quite nice and dry, super dry. Yeah, see, normally I drink sort of deeper, thicker, richer beers, but I really have a soft spot for the really good Japanese beers that are more sort of crisp and dry, uh, yeah. Well, well, I hope you get back to Japan and uh, say hello to them. I was actually an, an official guest there in the early 80s, but uh, that's oh, a, okay. that was a different story. I won't tell it on air. I may get arrested. <laughs> but... <laughs> So what are your plans for the future, youngster? The future? Well, right now I'm working on... I'm recording an album at home, so I'm looking to release that next year. Isn't that boring? Uh, Isn't that boring recording at home? Oh, no, I love it. I love it. You love it? I, I set myself the challenge of doing everything myself, playing every instrument, <laughs> recording and mixing it all myself. It's been a really great challenge. I've learned so much, you know. Like, I decided I wanted to have a recorder quartet in one of these songs so i had to buy some recorders and then spend weeks practicing so i could play it well enough like that was an awesome challenge so yeah and i really like mm-hmm. but I, I love working with other musicians too that's why i play in a band and when i record you know i've recorded albums with the band and we work all together in the studio with you know that stuff by an actual proper professional engineer and that's great too but yeah mm-hmm. recording myself at home has been a really good challenge which i've enjoyed mm-hmm. Look, I tell, I tell guests that think of this interview as something that you could play excerpts at your funeral, you know, in 30 or 40 years' time. So have you got any any advice for your little grandchild or any more grandkids coming up or the younger generation? You know, you've lived a good life. You've never been conscripted. You haven't been shot at, except, well, you've had a bottle thrown at you. You know, you lived an exceptionally good life, I reckon, so your parents should be proud of you. So any advice for the... The young listener we have. I think we've got one under 30 somewhere. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's, a really good, that's a really good question. My first thought is, I have no idea. Like, <laughs> You're uh, a grandfather. You need something. You've got to leave something behind. 
You haven't got any money to leave behind. You, you, you failed musician, monetary. You're but, brilliant as a musician, but in terms of making money, you haven't made any money out of it. So you could no, leave your grand, be, grandkids with, with some par- parting words. They can can be heard at their funeral. I really think it is, you know, like... Don't get talked out of doing what you really love, you know. Even if you've got to do other stuff to keep going, don't get talked out of doing what you love because... You know that's what gives you. That's that's what keeps you going in the end. You know, yeah. and and part of that is like don't be scared of getting things wrong because like every time you stuff something up, that's when you learn how to do better. That's how I learned to like home record myself, like by doing a terrible job and then doing a slightly less terrible job and then doing a slightly less terrible job until you do a good job. Mm. That's, that's that's how my whole job is my, my day job has been as well i didn't know what the hell i was doing figure it out as you go along work it out like i i, I think yeah i don't know if that's really good advice or if that was even no, that's brilliant no, that's, that's your life that's your life we shouldn't have actually spent 55 minutes talking to you we just could have got the last two minutes <laughs> that's it i mean that's your life <laughs> you're doing what you want you've got a paid job to help you're doing what you want. What else do you want from life? You know, life's not a dress rehearsal. So many people I know have got to 65 or 67, retired and dropped dead 12 months later and they never did what they wanted to do. You've been doing what you, you've wanted to do. You're my hero. You've crossed the Sydney <laughs> Harbour Bridge on a bicycle and you've got to do what you want to do. And you're a that grandfather. A you're a hero. I wanted to be your hero, Joe, you're a hero. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, look, you know... I, I'm always it always blows my mind when I hear about people who don't want to retire because they don't know what they'll do or who retire and then have nothing to do because I just always think man I can't wait to well I can't wait to retire because I've got nothing to retire on but if I had something to retire on bring it on I've got so much I want to do <laughs> <laughs> I've only just started you know well you have you have Look, and remember when you can't play the trombone, like, that's my next project. Is it? Oh, God. I don't want to be near you when that starts. (laughs) (laughs) Look, remember us on the 11th of November. Give them all those useless esoteric facts and tell them you're number five on the world, on the Australian history stage. You play there post-COVID. That's it. That's brilliant. Look after yourself. Dino Lombardi, a.k.a. Dean Lombard. And, uh, Thank you, Giuseppe. It's been such a great pleasure talking with you. <laughs> All the best. Thank you.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.